podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is about the man trying to get Ukraine cricket into the ICC. Kubis Willefeel, officially CEO of Ukrainian Cricket Federation, but unofficially a dog dad. We talk about the war, the history of Ukraine cricket, Bob Warmer, Kenyan cricket, apartheid, Gary Kirsten, and why it's important the ICC allow Ukraine into their fold. I'm not sure if there's any triggers in this episode, but of course some of it is about the war. So proceed accordingly. You're not in the Ukraine at the moment, so I suppose let's start with that. How did you get out? Is everyone safe? Are you doing okay? Yes, Jared, thank you so much. We're safe. We're in uh, Zagreb at the moment. I've been here for about five weeks now in Croatia, me and my four dogs. It was quite a journey. We left Kiev. Well, the war started on the 24th of February, and about six weeks into the war, it got quite dangerous in Kiev when they were fighting up in Irpin. I was literally 15 minutes away from Irpin and Bucha. So I could hear the explosions and I saw on CNN and people were talking and and I understood it's time to take my dogs and get out of Kiev. So uh, we left Kiev then. It was quite a journey getting here as well. We ended up in first in the west of um, Ukraine in a little town or little village called Ivana Frankiska. From there, we made it across the border into Poland. I got kicked out of Poland because of visa issues. So I couldn't fly with the dogs. I had to buy a car and I drove. It's an 11-hour drive through Slovakia and Hungary. And then when I got to the Hungarian border, they wouldn't let me with my dogs out of Hungary. So I got stuck there for about three, four days. And eventually I made it to Croatia, to Zagreb. And uh, we're safe in a little apartment. And uh, yeah, it was quite a rough three months from the 24th of February to where I'm sitting now. It feels like a lifetime. I mean, it's an incredible journey. I'm assuming that some of the other players have not had a lucky a time as that you have there. Yeah, the core of our senior cricket players in Ukraine that play in our senior leagues, the Asian Indian players, they had a horrible experience. They were Most of them were based in Kharkiv. They were medical students there and they spent up to two weeks. Some of them were three weeks down in, in the metro stations, which served as um, bomb shelters in Kharkiv. They couldn't get out. And then eventually they managed to get out into Poland as well. They evacuated with buses and from there they went into India. But quite a few of our national team players and also two of our board members are Ukrainian citizens. And they between this ages of 18 and 60 and no men between the ages of 18 and 60 is allowed to leave Ukraine. So they stuck there and uh, two of them actually, Wayne and Yuri, 
They work for a church. Um, Wayne is a pastor there, and they're doing humanitarian work. They've got a little truck, and they take supplies, food and medical uh, stuff to people that's stuck in shelters, and they're right in the front lines. They've gone into villages there. About a month ago, Yuri was in their little truck, and it got hit by a Russian missile, and Yuri escaped with a few bruises and scrapes. I, I, he's a huge guy, and he's as strong as an ox. But how we got out of that, I saw pictures of the little truck. It's blown to bits. So these guys are doing unbelievable work. And one of our other board members, also Yuri, he's our legal advisor. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's also doing humanitarian work, giving supplies to people in Kharkiv, in Mariupol. So these guys are doing unbelievable, well, very dangerous, but also fantastic work at the moment in Ukraine. I mean, it feels weird at this stage talking to you about cricket when, you know, that's what's going on for many of the players and the board members, as you've just said. But there's a reason why this is also a fairly important time about cricket in Ukraine as well, isn't there? Jared, I would say very much we're at the crossroads. Cricket started in 2000, 2001. The senior leagues cricket started in Ukraine. Quite a few people were involved, but our president, Mr. Deep Singh, has a business in Kharkiv, and he brings in Indian medical students, mostly from India. There's about 10,000 Indian medical students in Ukraine, and most of them study in Kharkiv. They're medical students there, and Mr. Deep Singh facilitates all this and he plays them in their universities in Kharkiv and they've been playing cricket there for well since 2000 and they've been trying to become an associate member of the ICC because Ukraine hasn't got that status yet. They've been trying since 2008 to become associate members and they tick all the boxes. They meet all the criteria when it comes to the senior cricket and the leagues. They incredibly organized. They play right through June, July, August. They play their tournaments. Every weekend there's a tournament. We've got three home grounds. They play last season. Mr. Deep Singh managed to secure a ground for us as sort of our main field, the headquarters. In Kharkiv, beautiful stadium. You know, nobody's been able really to get back into Kharkiv and see what's happened. If I look at pictures and video footage, I'll be surprised if our cricket stadium is still there. 70% of Kharkiv got bombed. And then we've got a ground in Kakalik. That is where Wayne and his church, his congregation is in Kakalik. That's about an hour outside of Kiev. And they've been playing the league matches there up to last season. And now they're using both. And then we've also got a ground in Kiev for our students in Kiev. But they've never had junior cricket. They've never done any cricket development for Ukrainian kids in Ukrainian schools. So... When I arrived there in 2018, without knowing about the senior career, I thought there's no cricket in Ukraine. I started cricket in the schools where I was teaching English. And then uh, they contacted me and said, hey, did you know there's Ukrainian Cricket Federation? We've actually play, been playing cricket here since 2000. And I, I was completely surprised. I didn't know that. So I had a meeting with them and they asked me then, they elected me as CEO on their board. I was the previous CEO of Cricket Kenya. And then I started this junior program and all of a sudden we ticked all the boxes for the criteria to become an associate member of the ICC. So, well, since 2018, we've been working very closely with Andy Wright at the European Regional ICC office. He's been taking us through this 
process. We had to do presentations to the ICC, spreadsheets. I've been sitting tirelessly at night with these spreadsheets with the board members. And then in December last year, 2021, we actually met all the criteria. We ticked all the boxes and we submitted our application to become an associate member of the ICC in December last year. And it's on the table now for the membership committee of the ICC uh, is meeting in the last week of July this year. And we are just sitting waiting for that now. If they've got to make this decision, we can't preempt it, obviously, but I'm incredibly optimistic that we will be granted associate membership of the ICC. And that will make all the difference. And to be very honest, that will keep Ukrainian cricket alive. Without that associate membership, I'm afraid, I think all our hard work since 2000 will basically be in vain. That will be very much the end of Ukrainian cricket if we don't get associate membership. So it's a huge you know, I'm counting the days to the last week of July. It's a make or break for Ukrainian cricket. There's so much to unpack from what you just said there, but let's start with you. You mentioned Kenya cricket, but you're actually from Cape Town and your claim to cricket fame is that Bob Woolmer was one of your coaches. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't say I've got any claims to fame, but I, <laughs> I would say I was fortunate enough and that was probably a turning point in my own life. When I was 10 years old, I went to Afrikaans school and Afrikaans traditionally in South Africa, the Afrikaans people, they play rugby. Our rugby team, as you know, are, are defending uh, World Cup champions or reigning World Cup champions. So our rugby, as Afrikaner, I played rugby at school. All kids played rugby. And then the traditional English schools where they speak English are more your cricket schools. And then uh, most of our black young guys play soccer. So I ended up playing rugby in winter. I was waiting for winter to come and just to keep myself busy. I played a bit of cricket in summer. I love sport. Anything with a ball, I'm, I'm playing. And I was about 10 years old at the time. And Bob Woomer walked into our nets one day at Auckland Park Law School, which means primary school. As a little 10-year-old, I was in the nets hitting a ball. And I've never seen a cricket professional in my life. And here's this guy walking in with a British accent. He had a Kent Second Eleven sweater under the Kent horse on the sweater. They've got the little two. I think he was 20 years old at the time. It was his first season as an English pro going to play overseas. And he was going to be the professional coach. We never had a professional coach in the school before. And Bob walked in with his Gray Nichols cricket equipment, his bag, and the bat came out Gray Nichols. On the bag, it said Gray Nichols. The pads, Gray Nichols, his shirt, everything, uh, the gloves. And I've just never seen that. You know, I had a sort of all sorts mix of... I had a gun and moor bat at the time and county gloves and, you know, all of us. And here's this guy walking in with all this equipment, the British accent. And that just changed my life. I decided there and then after two or three sessions with Bob and he was telling us about Canterbury and the tree in the ground at their home ground. They've got the tree and uh, it just made such an impression on me. And he was telling us how he faced Lillian Thompson in that famous series where Thompson hurt all the English batsmen. And he was telling us how Edrich got hit so badly on the hand that they had to cut his glove off. I'll never forget, he said in the change room when they were waiting to him bat the English guys, they wouldn't watch. They would all sit at the back with cups of tea and Bob told us a story and you could hear the teacups rattling as they were sitting there. They were so nervous to go and bat and it made such an impression on me and I was 10 years old. I'm going to become a professional cricketer and my life since then has 
all being cricket. And then I was also very fortunate when I was 22, I played senior first division club cricket in Cape Town. And I opened the batting with Bob at his club at the time. Bob was about 45, I think. And he just played club cricket at Avondale more to help the guys. It was the so-called colored club. And Bob started a program there and he basically changed the club around. And they were the first colored club to come and join the white league at the time. It was still during apartheid. And Bob used to get all the English professionals there. He had Alan Eagleston, the Cowdery brothers, Mark Benson, the Kent opening bat. They all ended up having a season at Avondale. And then uh, Bob phoned me one day and he asked me, I was playing for Stellenbosch University. I was first year and I played in the second team. And he said, Kubis, if you want to come and play for Avondale, I guarantee you opening spot in the first team, opening the batting with me. And I didn't have to think twice. I, yes, I called him sir from school. They say, yes, sir. I'll be there on Tuesday at practice. And I went to Avondale. I had to take two trains from Stellenbosch. It took me about an hour and a half to get to practice. I never, never missed a practice. I played in the first side with Bob. And I still called him sir when we were playing together. I would call him for a run. I said, yes, sir, or no, sir. And Bob kept telling me, please call me Bob. I just couldn't. It's sort of the Afrikaans upbringing, that respect. But Bob had a huge influence on my life as a cricketer. And also at university, I was very fortunate for that one year before Bob called me, I was coached by Eddie Barlow. Oh, wow. He was a coach at Stellenbosch University. He was a legend and very different from Bob. It was very interesting in later years to compare the way these two, they sort of the way they coach cricket. Bob was incredibly technical and Eddie was this, it's not about where your arm or where your foot is. Just watch the ball and hit the ball. And it's all about your mind and positive. And it was very different philosophies on coaching. And yet both were very effective. And later on, when I coached cricket, I very much sort of had a middle, not too technical, very much on the psychological side of cricket, backing yourself, but also like a basic backlift and that to get technical in cricket from the Bob influence. So it was very interesting to work with these two coaches at sort of the formative years of my cricket career. Where do you go from there? Obviously, you don't make it as a professional cricketer. Where do you go from there between there and the Ukraine? I mean, you mentioned Kenya before as well. Yeah, I played first division club cricket in Cape Town for many seasons. And then during our sort of off season, Eddie Barlow actually organized it for me first to go and play in Derbyshire league cricket during the university holidays, July, August. And uh, I went over to the UK, played club cricket for Langley Mall in the Derbyshire League. And with a guy called Fred Swabrook, he played a lot for Derbyshire. He was quite a bit of a veteran then. And I learned so much playing on those wickets, club cricket in the UK with the teas, with the cakes. It was just a different world from what I was used to. And I loved it. Then I got a sponsorship from Newbury in later years. And I used to go to the factory in Roberts Bridge and pick up my four Newbury bats and my gloves and that. Mm. And I felt like a real pro. And uh, I played about uh, 11 seasons as a pro in the UK for Club Pro. And then in Cape Town, I still played club cricket there. But I also was director of cricket at the University of Cape Town from 1996 to 2010. So for 14 years. And during that time, University of Cape Town cricket was incredibly strong. As director of cricket, I appointed Gary Kirsten, um, Brian McMillan, Emerson Trotman, the West Indian, now coaching Barbados. I appointed these guys as coaches. Also Alan Dawson that played for South Africa. And it was actually a very interesting story. Gary was coaching UCT for three months. He's never coached cricket before. And he got the job as coach of India. 
Yes, he at the time, our first team coach was Hilton Ackerman, who is also a cricket legend in the Western Cape. Hilton never played for Africa. It was during the apartheid years in the 70s. But Hilton had a lovely story. I'll tell you this one quickly. Hilton used to tell the students when he, um, he went to play for a World Eleven in Australia against the Australian side. And when he mm. arrived at the airport with Mike Proctor and Barry Richards, this tiny little short guy walked up to him and he asked him, uh, he said, hello, welcome to Australia. I'm here to take you to a hotel. And Hilton asked him, he said, oh, sorry, mate, do you mind taking one of my bags here and just carry it to the car for me? And the little man said, no problem. And he carried Hilton's bag for him. And when they got to the car, he said, can I introduce myself? My name is Donald Bradman. And Hilton said he's never <laughs> been so embarrassed. He got Donald Bradman to carry his bags to the car. So Hilton had some wonderful stories to tell with the students. But he was very sick at the time. And then during his time as first team coach, halfway through the season, he passed away. And I phoned Gary. I, I didn't know who to ask to coach the team. I coached for about a month, but it wasn't that great. We had some really good players. And then... Uh, I phoned Gary, and he was an ex-student at University of Cape Town. So I phoned Gary, where I know very well. I played a lot of club cricket with Gary, and I said, you know, Gaza, do you want to come and coach UCT on a Tuesday and a Thursday? And then Saturdays, you only come for an hour or so. We had a young family, then I'll sit with the team, but if you can come and coach. So Gary, we sat down at an Italian restaurant. I'll never forget it, down in Rondebosch, just near the university. And Gary said, well, yeah, can you pay me? I said, well, we don't have a big budget. I can pay about a thousand rand, which is nothing a month mm. for coaching. And there's only three months of the season left. So Gary agreed and he coached us for about two months. And then there was a month ago at the end of season, we played our annual South African Universities tournament down in Pretoria where all the universities play for a week. And then the final, you play on television and it gets televised on MTN, the pay channel there. So Gary was going to go with the team. And I, as administrator, director, I bought the tickets for the team. I bought Gary's ticket. And two days before, we were supposed to start the tournament on Monday, fly down on the Saturday and have a net on Sunday and get ready. And on Friday night, Gary phoned me. He said, Kubis, listen, he sent me SMS, sorry. He said, I'm not going to make the SAU tournament. I said, yeah, Gary, we're flying tomorrow. You're really letting me down. I'm really disappointed. He said, Kubi, I'm sorry. I'm actually in India, but keep it quiet. And I said, what? Why are you in India? So I'll tell you later, but I'll probably be coming on Wednesday. So don't cancel my ticket. Just change the date to Wednesday. Mm. So I told the students, guys, I'm afraid you stuck with me as a coach for the first two games. But hopefully on Wednesday morning early, I'll pick Gary up at the airport in Pretoria. And he'll be here to coach you on the Wednesday, Thursday and Friday to be with the team. And the Tuesday evening, I got another SMS from Gary. He said, Kubis, I have tell the boys I won't make it. I've just been appointed as coach of India. And I still sent him a message. I said, mate. Don't take the piss. You can't coach. And he's never coached before. And he went straight from a UCT club site for three months to coaching Indian site with Dravid and Dulkar. I mean, it's a legend. Sewak, these guys. And uh, it was quite a story. But yeah, I then, from UCT cricket, mm. I then became uh, also in our off-season 
I did a contract with the university and I was then appointed as national head coach and development officer for Dutch cricket, the KNCB in Holland. Mm-hmm. I worked there in 2000 and 2001. I coached all the junior sides from under 10 to under 23. And Emerson Trotman, funnily enough, that was one of my coaches at the University of Cape Town. He was the uh, national coach for the Dutch national side. And Ryan Tinduskater that played for UCT, he captained the team for five seasons during my time there, right in Duskata, then I caught up with him again in Holland. He went on to play for Holland and obviously captained Essex to two county championships. At UCT, we also had Graham Smith played for us. I got a call one day from Jimmy Cook from Johannesburg and he said, listen, I've got a young cricketer here. Jimmy Cook had a cricket academy at King Edward School in Joburg. And he said, I've got this young cricketer here. The guy's a phenomenal captain, great player, opening bat, Graham Smith. But if he's going to play for Gauteng, he's not going to captain the side. I want him to come down to Cape Town and I think he's got a chance to captain the Western Province team. So can Mm. you accommodate him at the University of Cape Town on a scholarship? So I offered Graham a scholarship. He played two games for us and then he got signed up as a pro. He got a contract with Western Province Cricket and as they say, the rest is history. But we had Graham there, Farhan Bechadi, Nick Compton played there for a season for the University of Cape Town as the opening bat. Charles Langefeld played for us, who's now a South African bowling coach. Chris Cook, the Glamorgan wicketkeeper, captained them last season, played for UCT. Mm. And Brian Murphy, the Zimbabwe leg spinner and also captain Zimbabwe for a while. He captained us for five years. So I had a fantastic time at the University of Cape Town. And then from there in 2014, I went to Kenya as CEO of Kenyan Cricket. Um, and h- how did you make that leap? How, d- how did that happen? I took a bit of a flyer. I've been at UCT at that stage for 14 years, and I thought I'm probably ready for something I'm not saying bigger, but something different, just a change of scenery. I've always been very interested in African cricket and my mate Andy Kirsten, Gary's brother, Andy actually was assistant coach to the Kenyan national side in 2003 when they played in the World Cup in South Africa. He made the semi-finals, yeah. So I followed Kenyan cricket quite a bit and I became friends with Asif Karim, who captained them in that World Cup. And uh, he actually phoned me and said, listen, Kubis, Kenya is advertising for a CEO. Please apply for the position. And I put my name in the hat and that's something like 180 applicants. I thought I've got no chance. And then the next thing I had a few interviews, literally within a week, it all happened. I had three dogs. I've always had dogs. That's why I jokingly said I'm a dog dad. I had my three dogs. I call it, I put them in a box and I went to Nairobi. And a week later, I was CEO of Kenyan cricket and I was thrown in at the deep end. We had about two weeks to prepare for a World Cup T20 qualifying tournament. The qualifiers were taking place in Dubai. Then they had the official 50-over World Cup qualifying tournament in New Zealand about a month later. You know, I'm the new CEO. I had to make sure the team's prepared. At the same time, about my second day, I had to fire the coach. I was told by the board, the coach who was a played test cricket for Zimbabwe, Robin Brown, they fired him. And it was a tough time. I tell you, I was in at the deep end. And I was quite lucky then in our preparations. I phoned Gary in desperation. I said, Gary, we don't have a coach now. Can you come and help us? And he just came off the back of when he took India to win the World Cup. And he was the most sought after coach in world cricket. Took South Africa to number one. I took a flyer. I phoned Gary. I said, can you come and help? But I've got no budget, Gary. And Gary <laughs> laughed and he said, you know, Kirby, 
you can put me anywhere. I don't need the Hilton. Put me up in any hotel for a weekend and I'll fly Kenya Airways economy class. And I mean, you couldn't believe it. Gary, most famous coach in world cricket at the time, even now, I think, flying economy class Kenyan Airways to Nairobi. I put him up in Nairobi Cricket Club on the ground. The club has mm. some rooms there. And I said, Gary, I, I mean, I feel terrible to put you here, uh, but I just can't afford. He said, Kubi, I told you it's okay. And then uh, I got a call about half an hour after I dropped him off and he was supposed to go to sleep. I got a call. He said, yes, he could be. I don't want to complain, but there's no hot water here. And he had to take a cold shower that night. And I picked him up at six in the morning to start working with the Kenyan team. And he spent the two days preparing the team with me. Unbelievable two days where he just worked with them. I'm not lying, almost 12 hours a day. It would be technical stuff. And then he would do practical with him on, on the outfield and um, middle practices, match situations. He was phenomenal. And then from Kenya, I went to Dubai, started my own cricket academies there. One started first with Gary Kirsten. We had a Gary Kirsten cricket academy that never mm. really got off the ground. And then uh, I did a very successful cricket academy in Dubai for five years. I worked with Ashwin, the Indian spinner, and myself and Ashwin at the Gen X Cricket Academy in Dubai. And then from there, I ended up in 2018 in Kiev. So quite a story and a lot of moving around. All of this life in cricket, but it, it, when you go to Kiev in 2018, it's not really about cricket, is it? I know you talked about teaching people English, yeah. and you could probably explain it better how you use cricket to teach English, but why after all that time did you kind of move away from cricket? Jared, especially in Dubai, you know, it gets incredibly hot there. And four and a half years in Dubai coaching cricket, most of the time I was outside. Mm. Every Saturday and when we play matches, obviously you don't play indoors, you were outside. And uh, the heat just absolutely killed me. I mean, Gary used to fly in for weekends to come and do master classes. And I remember when I took him back to the airport on a Monday morning, he said, geez, I just can't wait to get out of this place. It's just mm. incredibly hot. And we would play right through July, August, when it's like sometimes up to 50 degrees. They played a Ramadan league, which they play at night. I've never seen that in my life. I was coaching two teams that played in that Ramadan league, senior teams. So the guys asked me, will I come and coach a side? I said, yes. And they then the first match was on the Saturday and I said to the guys, they said, they'll come and pick me up. And I said, but I think it was that weekend, it went up to 53 degrees. I said, how are we going to play cricket in 53 degrees? And they said, no, we're picking you up at 12 o'clock tonight. I said, and then when do we play cricket? They said, no, the match starts at one o'clock in the morning. So they played <laughs> under floodlights. Then they play from one o'clock at night until six in the morning. It's still about 45 degrees at night. And they play cricket at night. Then they sleep in the day. So uh, I had four and a half years of that. And I just thought I need a break. And at the time was planning to leave cricket. But I had a five-day break at the academy. And I thought, I want to go somewhere where it's cold, where it's snow, where it's anywhere near minus five five plus or colder. I need to get out of this plus 50. So uh, actually, it was a classic story. I saw a cheap flight to Kiev on Dubai Airlines and uh, fly Dubai. I think I went to the Serbian embassy and I stood in a queue for about two hours. And eventually I got to the front. I said, yeah, I need a visa to go to Kiev. And the lady looked at me and said, but what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm getting a visa. She said, no, Kiev is in Ukraine. 
So I didn't even know at the time Kiev was in Ukraine. So I had to go back, <laughs> Google Ukrainian embassy, and then I went to the Ukrainian embassy and got my visa. And I ended up spending five days in a hotel in Kiev. And it was about minus 10. I was walking in snow knee deep. And it's my first time, you know, being from Cape Town, South Africa. We don't see snow there. And uh, it was just an unbelievable experience. I loved it. And Kiev, it's a wonderful city. The history, the architecture, the old buildings, cobblestone roads, the little coffee shops and restaurants in winter. They've got little cozy restaurants. You go in there and there's fireplace going. And I fell in love with Kiev. And in 2017, I I went back seven times in the one year. Every time I had a break, I would jump on a plane and I went to Kiev. And I then became friends with a Ukrainian ambassador in Dubai, Dr. Alexander. And the one day when I went for my seventh visa, he joked with me, he said, you keep spending all your money on visas. Why don't you just move to Kiev? I said, no, I can't. There's no cricket. And he said, well, do something else. Go and sell South African wine or dry fruit or teach English. And I laughed at the time, and about a week later, I was back in his office. I said, listen, I gave it a thought. Why not? If it doesn't work, I can always come back and do cricket. My whole life has been cricket. Maybe mm. a break and test myself, see if I can do something else. So I ended up moving with my dogs, and my dad was alive at the time. He was about 83. I was taking care of my dad. He couldn't walk anymore. So I took my dad and my dogs with me, my three dogs at the time. And uh, I moved to Kiev and started teaching in a big private school there, Academy A+. I became the native English-speaking teacher. And they were teaching in a very old-fashioned way, still sort of Soviet Union way in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, English was all grammar, and they sit in a class, and it's very strict and incredibly boring. So I also teach yoga. So I thought, you know, I can't do this. this I'll rather teach cricket in 50 degrees than sitting in a classroom in the beautiful snow, but working with a grammar book, and I just couldn't do it all day long. So I started taking my kids outside in summer. I would take them outside. I had one set of cricket equipment with me that I took with me, the plastic, the mini cricket set. Mm. I took it as a gift for a friend of mine that's in Dubai, Australian mate, for his son. And he left before I actually arrived there. He left Kiev. So I, I arrived there with this cricket kit and I got it out of my cupboard and I took it to school and I showed the kids the cricket. They didn't know what a cricket bat was. I showed them the plastic balls, the stumps, and I started playing cricket during my English lessons and it just became a hit. I'm also a sport teacher. I studied, um, after a degree in phys ed as a PE teacher. So the school then enjoyed the idea of my English lessons so much where the kids were playing cricket in English that they asked me to start teaching some physical education lessons during the school curriculum. So I then started teaching cricket indoor in the indoor sports hall during my physical education lessons. And it became an absolute hit. The kids were coming to me in the morning before school started. They would run to me at the gate and say, hey, Oliver, Oliver, can we play cricket today? So it just took off. And then also a bit of yoga. And then the fact that they were playing cricket, not thinking about grammar and mistakes, mm. they were concentrating on the cricket. Do I watch the ball? Where do I hit the ball? How do I hold the bat? How do I stand? How do I bowl? And they started speaking English and got a fantastic response from the teachers and from the parents. And then the cricket program took off and I started full on my own 
grassroots cricket development program where the kids, I got more sets of cricket equipment from Mr. Shambhatya, who was my, I call him my mentor in Dubai. He took care of me in Dubai. He's been there for about 50 years. He's a cricket institution. He's a legend in Dubai. He's got his own cricket museum, which is the biggest private mm. cricket museum in the world. He's got a cricket charity organization called Care for Cricket. And I phoned him. I said, Mr. Batya, I started cricket in Ukraine. He said, what? But you told me you're going to sell wine. I said, no, I'm back to cricket and I need some sets. And he sent me seven mini cricket, softball cricket sets. And uh, I started playing cricket in the school. And then from there, I became the director of another private school, Aster, and they had a chain of 10 schools. So I started teaching the PE teachers, the physical education teachers in the other nine Aster schools. And in my school, I taught them basic mini cricket rules and how to play. So cricket became a part of the physical education curriculum in all 10 the Aster schools. So all of a sudden, the cricket program just exploded. And then I started teaching during summer camps. I was asked by various schools and they have an organization called British Camps and they do huge camps, up to 1,000 kids in a camp in summer. It's like a one-week camp with like 300 kids in the next week, the next batch come. And I became a part of their program doing cricket with the kids. So I would say in three years, probably more than 2,000 kids went through my cricket program, which I did all on my own. I had no other coaches. I did it on my own. And then I was approached by the Ukrainian Cricket Federation, by Mr. Deep Singh. They read about my cricket program. There was an article in Forbes magazine about this cricket program that I've started. And they then asked me for a meeting and they told me they've been playing senior cricket there. And they voted me in as CEO of the Ukrainian Cricket Federation. And I was then doing my cricket program as part of the Ukrainian Cricket Federation program. Then everything fell into place that we ticked all the boxes. We met the criteria to apply to become an associate member of the ICC. And from there, it's just been a roller coaster. I've been so busy with cricket. I thought I'm going away from cricket getting out of cricket when I went to Kiev, but I've never been so busy with cricket, especially since the war started. I've been incredibly busy here in Zagreb with my junior cricket program for Ukrainian refugee children. So it's this incredible journey. You accidentally come back into cricket because you can't help yourself, which is fine. Makes sense. I can understand that. You don't have deep roots in Kiev. I know you said you holiday there quite a bit. And you've only lived there for three or four years. You're obviously in Zagreb now. You're not sure if you'll be able to go back to Ukraine, I assume? To be very honest, I can't see for the foreseeable future that going back to Ukraine is an option. My whole life, you know, I've, you mentioned that I don't really have roots there. I've probably never really had roots anywhere. I've always had this philosophy that I'm not a tree. I'm not planted somewhere. It's great. I'm very proudly South African, but I can live anywhere in the world. I've lived in about 10 countries now. I was also in Scotland. I played as a pro for one season in Glasgow. I tend to adjust very quickly. Once I go to a new place, I love challenges. I see it as a challenge and I never look back and I embrace the new culture, especially when I went to Dubai. I, my apartment block in the marina was right next to a mosque. Yeah, I used to wake up at five in the morning. Other Westerners in this 
apartment block used to complain and say these guys are waking up at five in the morning where they're chanting. I say, oh, I love it. I wake up and I feel I'm definitely not in Cape Town. I can feel I'm in another country. It's a different culture. I actually started some uh, days I would go to afternoon prayers at five o'clock with some of my Muslim friends just to get the feel of it. I started eating a lot of the Arabic meals, the food, the kebabs, the kind of traditional food of the Muslim people eating with my hand. So wherever I go, I see it as an absolute challenge and I'm a bit like a fish in water. I can adapt anywhere. Within a very short time, I understand the culture, I understand the new challenges and I embrace it and I become a part of it. So um, I know old Bruce Lee says something, he said something about you've got to be like water. And I always feel I'm really, when it comes to that, I'm like water. I just fit in and I find a way and I embrace it. And I never compare. I don't think back, oh, I miss the view of Clifton Beach. I had a little beach bungalow on the beach for 11 years. I miss seeing Table Mountain. I never think like that. It's like, wow, I'm looking at the marina. I'm going on a desert safari. It's got its own beauty. Kiev, the beautiful old buildings, the cathedrals. So I adapt very quickly and I see it as a challenge. And I, I really believe that is the only way to really grow as a person. It's not just cricket. There's so much more. That's what I love about Jonty. Jonty Rhodes is a good mate of mine. You know, when you follow Jonty on Instagram in India, his little girl is named India. He embraces the whole Indian culture. He's always up somewhere in a little village in the mountains with Indian people surfing in places you've never heard of in India. And myself and Jonty are very similar there. We call ourselves, I think, sort of cricket nomads. Jonty is the same. And when I went to Kiev, it was just the same. I just loved Kiev. I enjoyed the people. It's a new challenge. And especially starting a new cricket project. Because once I did it in Kiev, when I arrived in Zagreb, my second day here, I was already asking for cricket equipment. I contacted the guys from the Croatian Cricket Federation. The other Ukrainian refugees were still trying to get their visas sorted out. And don't say too loud on the podcast, but I still haven't gone through the whole process to do my visa. I haven't had time. I've been so busy with cricket. I'm absolutely absorbed. Other people didn't have their bank accounts. My first day, I opened a bank account here. I got my social, some number that you need in Croatia. I did all that in literally in three days. I started a cricket program here. I reached out to the Ukrainian refugees. There's about 14,000 Ukrainian refugees in Croatia. Most of them are in Zagreb because it's a capital. So they've got their own Facebook pages, Viber groups, mm. SOS Ukraine. And I went on there. I became a member. I signed up and uh, I joined them. And I started advertising cricket in the park on a Tuesday and a Thursday in the center of Zagreb at four to six come and play cricket. And I got the guys from the Croatian Cricket Federation assisting me with this project. So they organized a sponsorship from Domino's Pizzas. So whenever we have a session, every Tuesday and Thursday, we get unlimited pizzas. And we've had three sessions now. At the first session, I only had three kids and three moms. At my second session, I had 10. And this last Thursday, we had 13 kids, which means uh, 13 mothers. It's mostly single moms because the fathers can't leave Ukraine, so they're still stuck there. So it's the mothers come. So I had a group of close to 30 people there at my session in the park, and it's growing 
every day on the Viber group, people are inquiring, they're asking about the cricket program. So it's becoming really quite big now. And I see, I think this week, we'll have to move our sessions to another park, to a bigger park, because this park is actually not big enough to accommodate us anymore. So it's been an incredibly exciting project for me to work with these Ukrainian refugees. And I'm just continuing the work of the Ukrainian Cricket Federation, because I really feel like every time you, like when the war happens, it's terrible, but I can't sit at home and say, oh, it's terrible, now I'm sitting, I do nothing. I see it as, okay, there's got to be some positive in the war. There's something good can come from any bad situation. So I've looked, well, I've got Ukrainian refugees here, there's enough children, 13,000, there's no fathers here, so at least half of these 13,000 has to be Ukrainian children boys and girls, young ages. So I thought, well, here's a captive market for me to start a cricket program. So I just started my cricket here. This week was actually unbelievable. On Thursday, just before my session, eight boxes full of cricket equipment. I mean, I've got about 40 little plastic bats. I've got pads. I've got everything. They even sent me little pads and then the softballs. Eight boxes full of cricket equipment arrived from London from the Lord Stavners. That equipment was supposed to go to my program in Ukraine. It got stuck for a month in Lithuania. It was coming with it on a truck. The truck got stuck because of custom. We had problems at customs and the Ukrainian Cricket Federation we struggled for a month to clear those boxes and then the war broke out. If those boxes had gone through customs, it would have been stuck in Kiev now. Nobody could have used it. But it, when the war started, it was still stuck in Lithuania at customs. So I got the Croatian Cricket Federation guys. One of my first calls to them, I said, guys, help me. I need this equipment in Croatia. And they assisted me. And on Thursday, the eight boxes arrived here. So the kids on Thursday in the park were all using some of, I've got so much equipment. I've got enough for every kid in Croatia can get a cricket bat. So I've been playing with this equipment, so I've got more than enough equipment. So that's all turning very much negatives into positives and looking at how can I maneuver this into a way to still do my cricket. And I think this is very much going to be our if I can call it our saving grace to get associate membership. Because I've also now organized in the past week, I've arranged a tournament, the Ukrainian Freedom Cup, which will be played in Zagreb on the 2nd and 3rd of July, which is a month away. And already I contacted the Serbian Cricket Federation, Vladimir, I've been talking to him when I was even before this happened in Kiev. He's sending a team of between the ages of 8 and 12, little softball cricketers. They're coming down for the tournament. Uh, Czech Republic, I spoke to Chris in Prague yesterday. They had a big cricket day and it looks like 99% they're sending a team and Slovenia is also sending a team. Croatia will have a team. And then I've got two teams because we're hosting it. Two teams. There's eight players in the team with softball cricket. I've got two teams of Ukrainian refugees playing in this tournament. And the beauty is I've got about six of the kids out of my 18 kids that will play in the tournament. Six of them are about five, six years old, little girls and boys that's going to play in this uh, Ukrainian Freedom Cup. And it's going to be unbelievable. And now the spin-off from that is through my talks with Andy Wright at the ICC regional office in London. He contacted the MCC foundation and the MCC now has shown an interest. We've got a provisional agreement. They'll give the go-ahead this week that they're planning to get involved with this tournament and finance it and also send a team from London of little young cricketers, uh, MCC team. And 
some of the level three coaches that then on the Sunday, on the third, it will become like a MCC day of cricket events where they'll do coaching and do various programs with the kids, with their MCC coaches. So we'll effectively play the tournament on Saturday and Sunday. All these countries and teams will be part of a MCC cricket program for the day. And it looks like they will finance the First of all, the tournament, but they also, there's a very good chance that they will finance my whole program on a Tuesday and Thursday here with the refugee children. So much has happened in the past month. I can't believe I've only been here for five weeks. So much has happened in that time. It's clear that there's a part of you that sees cricket as a chance to connect with people and to move people forward and educate people. I think a lot of people might look at it and be like, with your skills, you could kind of be organizing anything. Why is it cricket, you know, Ukraine's in war, you're a refugee in Zagreb with all these refugees around you. Why is it cricket that you keep using? I go back to when I was 10 years old with Bob Wilmer and also my dad. My dad was a cricket lover. I grew up in Johannesburg and my dad was a university lecturer. And every Saturday when I was a kid, when I was too young to play myself, then when I got older on weekends, I was playing club cricket and school cricket myself. But at the age of five, six, my dad used to take me to the Wanderers. And we used to go and sit and watch cricket at the Wanderers. I just grew up with cricket. And almost from the first day, my dad gave me a book on my seventh birthday, Barry Richards wrote the book, Attack to Win. And that became my cricket Bible. And I had a, in an old sock with a rope, I hung that from the roof of our garage. And my dad had to park the car outside, winter and summer. The garage was my cricket area. And uh, I had this ball in the sock. And I would have this book of Barry Richards next to me. And he had little photographs of him going through, like, say, a forward defense would be six pictures from the back left to where he started going forward. And I used to look at this, and then with a sock, I would copy it. And that's why I opened the batting all my life. And I was never a great cricketer. I never made it as a top cricketer. But uh, technically, I was incredibly correct. People would watch me in the nets and thought, well, this guy's going to play for South Africa. But uh, I had a few more mental side. I was never mentally strong enough when I played. And that actually helped me a lot later on. And that's to get back to your question. That was what I found so amazing about cricket is that I knew I can play. I looked like a million dollars. I would face Brian McMillan in a club game looked okay, but I would get good-looking 20s and 30s. And it became sort of my chasing the holy grail to understand myself, what do I do wrong that I should be playing at a much higher level than being a pro in England for a club or being a club, firstly, cricketer in Cape Town. I used to get these 20s, 30s, and it became the mental side of cricket, the absolute challenges to be mentally strong enough to succeed at the highest level. And I was lucky when I played firstly cricket, I played against and with some very good cricketers, Peter Kirsten and oh, I can Garth LaRue, I can go on and open the batting with Gary. And I often look at Gary, when I played with Gary at club level, a young Gary Kirsten, I don't know, when he was a student at University of Cape Town, when he first came into university, Duncan Fletcher was a coach and Gary batted at number nine. He played more as an off spinner in the first side. And after about two, three seasons, he was literally just messing around. And he went to Duncan Fletcher and he asked him, he said, I want to really get serious with my cricket. He played rugby as well for University of Cape Town under 20, fantastic scrum off. And he said, I want to focus on my cricket and I want to play for Western Province. 
at that time, Western Province had a, I mean, Alan Lamp was playing Peter Kirsten, his older brother. And the only gap where Gary batted number nine for UCT, the only place where you could fit into a Western Province team at the time was as an opening bat. So Gary started opening the batting. And when he started opening the batting at club level, I was opening with him. And I've always opened. And Gary was technically very flawed. He was very open in his stance, and especially against a short ball. He worked for hours. I threw a million balls to Gary to drop his hands. Instinctively, he would come up fending off the ball and get caught behind in his first few games. It's a different thing opening the batting from batting at number nine for a club side. And Gary literally showed me that side of Gary Kirsten, and I will never forget it. I went hours at the UCT Nets and down at Alma Maris, another club. They had a cement net there, and Gary would bring these four and a three-quarter brand new Duncan Fernley balls, but they played junior cricket with it. And I would stand 10 meters away from Gary and threw just short balls at him, and he always played with this white helmet. I'll never forget it. And at the end of the session, Gary's helmet literally had five, six red spots on it. I used to hit him on the head, used to just duck and go like this, and I hit him on the elbows on the arm and I said Gary let me go back a bit or let's stop for a while and he said no I've got to get this right to sort of drop his hands and you know sway out of the way and Gary became his average is 45 in test cricket played 101 tests at that time if you told me Gary Kirsten's going to play for South Africa I didn't think he would play first class cricket and Peter his brother was just the opposite absolute natural cricketer and Gary just by sheer hard work and guts and mentally incredibly strong. Later on when he played for Western Province, we would go to the Nets and on a Saturday, he knows Western Province would be playing Eastern Province and Brett Schultz would open the bowling, left arm, fast bowler. He was uh, unbelievably quick and aggressive. And Gary would get the angle and everything and tell me to throw from 10 meters on that cement surface to him at the exact same angle as Brett Schultz would be bowling coming over the wicket as a left-hander to him. And he said, he's going to attack my body. It's all going to be short. And he would just spend the whole week working on that. So he prepared himself to play against Brett Schultz. And then when he played against Alan Donald, he would have a complete different, you know, coming over the wicket. Alan had the smooth action and you could see the ball in the hand all the way. So Gary actually told me to throw from where you could see my hand all the way, like Alan Donald, imitate Alan mm. Donald. So Gary's preparation before every innings, mental toughness was just something unbelievable and that taught me so much about cricket and to go through all this I was fascinated by cricket and also I find even now when I moved to countries so many of the things cricket taught me I use in everyday life especially in Kiev I was doing quite a bit of work with corporate companies as an English native speaker I did a lot of leadership sort of lectures and sessions with corporate companies and I worked with Johnson and Johnson for instance pharmaceutical company many others and I always use cricket in these sort of talks and use skills that cricket teach you to work as a team. You know, you're never bigger than the game. All 11, one individual star player is not going to win you the league over a season. It balances out. That star player could win you one or two or three games, but he's not going to win you 15 games throughout the season. You need the whole team to buy into this and uh, also really to never give up. 
cricket, you know, the one day you get a duck, you get two ducks, and the next day you go, you get a lucky, you get dropped on naught, and you score a hundred, and all of a sudden it just turns around for you and you hit a purple patch. I look at Ben Compton, that's um, playing for Kent now. Uh, I got to know Nick quite well when Nick was playing at UCT, and it was unbelievable Ben Compton's story. Of you know, I think he played at Notts. He couldn't get a contract. He went to Kent, scored three hundreds this season to start the season. Scored a hundred two days ago against the New Zealand Test side, and he's just been phenomenal. And that to me sums up cricket and why one should play cricket. You know, he's he's like twenty eight, twenty nine now. It looked like he's never going to make it as a pro, and all of a sudden, well, if he carries on like this, they got to give him a look in at the England Test side because they haven't got the best openers. And if Ben Compton keeps scoring runs like this, but to me that sums up what cricket is all about and why I love the game so much. It's just a absolute passion for me. If you, I know you've done all the box ticking, you've done everything that the ICC has asked to get Ukraine into position to become a member. If you could fly out to Dubai and present it and you had two minutes to tell them, what would you say to the ICC? What do you think it means for Ukraine to get this? I've been following the war obviously very closely because a lot of my friends are still there fellow teachers, male staff that couldn't leave the school. A lot of them are now in Donbass in the east and it's hell out there. And I would say if you look at Ukraine at the moment, how they've united as a nation fighting against all odds. I mean, they're fighting one of the top three military armies in the world fighting against Russia. They've been holding them back for more than three months now. They push them back from Kiev. That kind of determination, and if you see how proud, I follow a lot of Ukrainians on social media, the whole nation is absolutely united. And I think what this would mean for these Ukrainian kids, remember, they all traumatized. These kids have been through, well, the mothers, the parents, they've been through something we can never even begin to imagine in that war in the past three months. For them to have an opportunity to represent official Ukrainian team in tournaments and represent Ukraine with that flag. You saw what happened now at the Eurovision contest, that Ukrainian band that won it. I mean, any victory now for Ukraine, it doesn't have to be on the battlefield. To become an associate member of the ICC and play official T20 international cricket and they representing their country, for Ukraine... It goes way beyond cricket. It's a much, much bigger picture behind this. It would mean something that we can't even begin to imagine for Ukraine now to achieve any kind of victory like that, be it on the sports field, be it in a music festival competition, any victory now for Ukraine. It just lifts the whole nation at the moment. Sorry, I have two minutes. If I can just move off that quickly. I was fortunate enough to be in South Africa in 1996 when, you know, I grew up as a kid in apartheid era. And then when Nelson Mandela became president and I saw the new South Africa becoming the rainbow nation. And then that World Cup, Rugby World Cup with Francois Pinard, that movie Invictus, uh, with Nelson Mandela standing with a six on his Springbok jersey on the back next to Francois Pinard. And I saw how that sporting event united South Africa. Black people, Indian people, colored people, white people, 
everybody was dancing in the streets after that World Cup. It changed things around in Africa, and we were truly a rainbow nation. Now, to be a part of that, and in my lifetime now, to be a part of something similar happening in Ukraine, where the whole nation just united behind Zelensky and the pride at the moment in the Ukrainian flag. They will never give up. Ukraine will fight this war till the last man standing. And to see that twice in my lifetime, I'm incredibly fortunate. Most people never see it once. I've had it twice in South Africa and now with Ukraine. So I think what this would mean for Ukrainian, forget about the cricket, for Ukraine as a country at this time would be something that you have to look much, much further than cricket to understand the real meaning of what this could mean for Ukraine. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jared. Really appreciate it. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Banredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shivanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.